0: Well, we continue this morning in our sermon series uh, where we have been for quite some time in 1 John. Uh, We are actually nearing the end of that, uh, soon to wrap up shortly after Easter. And before we get into our our text this morning or actually leading into that text, I want to begin with the the story uh, about a a somewhat controversial 20th century uh, theologian uh, and a profoundly simple declaration of biblical truth uh, that he made it was at the University of Chicago a conference gathering biblical scholars theologians from around the world. And on this particular day at this particular session front and center uh, was renowned theologian Karl Barth. And from the audience someone asked the question. Dr. Barth, what is the most profound truth that you have discovered in your studies? And without hesitation, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The love of God. The love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And that's where we are again today. A passage that centers on the supreme reality that God is love. In fact, in our passage today, just 15 verses, the word love shows up 27 times. And you may say, this sounds like a familiar theme, and yes, it is. This is the third time that John speaks of love in his epistle, uh, the command to love one another. The sheer volume of space dedicated uh, to this topic in his letter, uh, it speaks to the importance of our love for one another, for fellow believers Well, today our text is 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 21. If you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you'll find that on page 1023. Before we hear God's word, let's take a moment to pray. We come to you this morning again, you, the God of love. You who would give Yourself for us, that we might know You. We ask that again today, You would make Yourself known to us. That You would open Your Word to us and us to Your Word. and That You, the God who has spoken the God, who by Your Spirit speaks through Your Word today, that You, that you would speak Your love deep into our hearts. For we believe, but help our unbelief. And so we look to you now, and we pray all this in Jesus. Amen. So now I invite you to hear the word of God from 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And this is the word of God given to us for our good and his glory. And so to it we turn. Well, here we are again, the topic of love. Love one another. It's where we were just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It's where we were uh, near the beginning of this sermon series. And so why? Why love again? I mean, come on, John, you've already covered the topic twice. Can't we just move on? Well, why again? Because we have forgotten again. John knows us too well. He knows that we forget and that we need to hear it again. And so, once again, we consider the command, the command to love. And as you take a look at this passage, you'll notice how it is bookended. John bookends the passage with verses 7 and 21. It's the very command to love. And what we see throughout as we walk through the passage that we'll see is that this gospel command is rooted in the central truth that God is love. Now, remember several weeks back when we considered the three tests. uh, John's three tests of genuine faith. How do you you know that your faith is real? That it is genuine? That it's it's not a, a fake, an empty faith? How do you know that it's genuine? Well, love is one of those tests. The relational test. Because if you're really a Christian, if you are really in union with Jesus, united to him by faith, then you are growing in real love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 11. If we love one another, God abides in us, and we in him. It's the test of love. And so that's what we're going to be exploring again this morning. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to come at it from three different angles. Uh, Seeing, knowing, and living. Seeing God's love. What evidence do we see here that God loves us? And then knowing. Knowing God's love. How do we really know? How do we really know deep down that God loves us? And then finally, living God's love. What does it mean to... To live in his love and then to live out of his love. So, first, seeing God's love, uh, verses 7 to 12. You'll see that's the first half of our passage. What evidence do we see that God loves us? Well, in the Academy Award winning movie, The Last Emperor, and when I say Academy Award winning, I mean nine Academy Awards. Uh, including best picture, best director. Uh, In this film, the the young child anointed as the last emperor of China, he he lives in a a magical life of luxury. He's got a thousand eunuch servants at his command. And one day, his brother asks, well, what happens when you do wrong? The boy emperor replies, when I do wrong... Someone else gets punished. And then to demonstrate, he breaks a jar and one of his servants is beaten. Philip Yancey notes that Jesus reversed this ancient pattern. Jesus turned it around so that instead of the servants being punished, now when the servants erred, the king was punished. You see, that's the love of God. That's grace For us, grace is free because it comes from the giver who has given himself in love and borne it at great cost. And that's what we see. In fact, right away in our passage, John roots God's love in concrete historical evidence, the reality of God's redemptive work in Jesus. He roots it in the incarnation and the crucifixion. Take a look, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The incarnation. And then verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Crucifixion. The incarnation and the crucifixion. If you were here last week, this is a clear echo of that text as well. As we heard last week, that Jesus Christ, God's Son, has come in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. This is concrete reality. It's it's not some some esoteric, ethereal idea out there, but it is real for us to know. It is good news. We, We see God's love through the incarnation. That God would become one of us. Would, would move into the neighborhood, that God would become flesh to live with a sinful people. We see God's love through the crucifixion, that Jesus would lay down his life for us, give himself for us on the cross, dying to death that we should die. So we see God's love in the incarnation, the crucifixion, but also we see God's love somewhere else in this passage. We see it through one another. See verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, does that kind of sound a little odd, like a change in topic? What's going on here? No one has ever seen God. Okay. If we love one another, God abides in us. Here's what John is doing. He's moving us from the incarnation and the crucifixion to imitation. The fact that we reflect the love of God to one another. No one has ever seen God. But when you came in this morning, you saw one another. We see each other. We have the opportunity to reflect the love of God to one another. We're called to be imitators of Christ. And so John here says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I mean, Jesus himself said that this is how others would know that we are followers of him. Imitators of Christ. Uh, just yesterday I did a wedding. And and one of the things that I love about premarital counseling is is beginning to watch a couple grow closer together. And eventually, in our time together, uh, we'll come to a place in Genesis 33. It's one of my favorite places in Scripture. Uh, I remember one of the first times I was studying it, one commentator referred to it as Luke 15 in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the story of the lost sons, and in particular the father's pursuit of the the younger son, uh, the prodigal. Because what we find and what I'm trying to explain to this soon-to-be husband and wife is that they will have the opportunity to reflect God's love to one another. And in Genesis 33, what what we discover is there are two brothers who are at odds with, with each other, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has deceived his brother. They have not seen each other for years, and Esau has every reason to hate his brother, to take him out. To kill him. I mean, if you're reading it, a, a first-time reader of that, that is might be what you would expect to find. Because it's probably what Jacob was expecting. And so as they are still miles and miles apart, before their families are about to meet, about to cross each other's paths, Jacob begins to send gifts in front of him. Maybe these gifts will appease the anger of my brother, which I'm sure he has. And then if those don't work, he, he begins to send his, his children and his wives. Maybe he'll have mercy on me because he'll see that I have a family. And then the moment comes, nothing else in between the two. Jacob and Esau. And as this one commentator had pointed out, it's as if Esau runs to his brother Jacob. and Jacob is stunned by the embrace that he receives. And Jacob looks at Esau, and he says, Genesis thirty-three, ten: For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. That's the opportunity that we have with each other, to receive each other with favor in the midst of our own mess, to reflect the love of God to one another. Now, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean the absence of sin. Not at all, but rather an abundance of forgiveness and reconciliation. This means that we actually deal with our sin. We deal honestly and openly. I'm not surprised that I fail you in sin against you. And you forgive and vice versa. That's reflecting the love of God. The relational test, the command to love. And just as love was the mark of Jesus, so it should be for us. That's what John is saying. So next, knowing God's love. The second half of this passage, verses 13 to 21. How do we really know that God loves us? Well, let me take you back to freshman psychology class. You remember Abraham Maslow and you get to Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the triangle, the pyramid and so basically he's asking beyond the need for daily sustenance which is at the bottom what is the most critical need that human beings have and he concluded that to be happy, human beings must have a sense of belonging acceptance and security or Listen to it in the words of Victor Hugo in Les Mis. He puts it this way. Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that you are loved. And ultimately knowing God's love. Because the rest of the Christian life flows out of that love. The love of God. Well, you may have noticed this word abide. It's used a few times. Uh, John speaks of knowing God's love with this word abide. In in the section we've just shifted to, these first three verses, five times. In fact, you might have gotten a little confused. Wrapped up, abide in this, abide in that, him and me, me and you. Abide. A word that it connotes intimate union, flourishing life. It's a, a word of great intimacy. In other words, verse 13. By this we know. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. It's the presence of Jesus. The risen Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit that He abides in us. And then John moves from the the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the Holy Scripture. Verse 14. might be hard to see at first, but he, he moves and he says, verse 14, As we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. As we have seen, now he has been talking about we, about us, but here he's made a shift. The we here refers to John and his fellow apostles. It's it's the same apostolic witness that we heard at the very beginning, the opening of John's letter, where we began this series. And it reads, That which was from the beginning, which we, the apostles, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you. Again, if you were here last week, another clear echo of that text. Again, where where John, where we heard last week that we, the apostles, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. In in other words, whoever knows God listens to us to the Word of God, to the Bible. Well, together, the Holy Scripture, coupled with the Holy Spirit, bears and grows faith. Verse 15, we see that we are given, we're given new life, a growing faith. We are enabled to, to truly, sincerely, genuinely confess that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Now, I'm talking about... Where John is talking about more than lip service. Anybody can say it. But he's talking about to mean it. To believe it. To be convinced of it. And to be becoming more and more convinced of it. Well through this mutual abiding that we are considering comes great intimacy with God. And through that intimacy, redemptive transformation takes place. God's work in the life of the believer. Along with a growing faith, as expressed in verses 16, 17, and 18, there's growing assurance and confidence of God's love, God's, God's love which is being perfected in us. One commentator explains John speaks of love being brought progressively to its full Godlike character in us as the gospel continues. It's ongoing, transformative work through God's abiding presence with us. This will both cast fear out of us and produce confidence in us as we anticipate the day of judgment. And the inevitable consequence, the inevitable fruit, evidencing genuine faith, true union with Jesus, is love. Love for one another. So again, just as love was the mark of Jesus, so it should be for us. But how? And that's the question John brings us back to again and again. How do we do it? And so that moves us to our final point. Finally, living God's love. What does it mean to to live in, to live out of the love of God as, as he abides in us and we abide in him? And so we go back to where we started, where we were at the beginning uh, of the sermon series, where we were at the beginning of our sermon today, where we started the relational test, the command to love. We find it uh, very clearly, verses 7 and 21, again, which book into this passage with the final statement being an echo, a clear echo of the great commandment. Love God, love neighbor. Verse 21. In this commandment we have from him... Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And then, as John previously wrote, as as we have heard in chapter 3, By this we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So because God is love, we're commanded to love like God. To love like Jesus Sacrificially, laying down, our, laying down our lives for one another, laying down our rights for one another. When I was a, a toddler, and I'm the, the oldest of two, so my, my younger brother wasn't born yet, so an only child at the time. When I was a toddler, my, my family was at the beach once. and uh, Our family was very close with a, a neighboring family, and they had two teenage daughters. and Those uh, two daughters would often babysit for me. And so one of these had accompanied us uh, to the beach. So my parents were sitting on the beach in their lawn chairs just enjoying the sunny day and knew that I was uh, safely in the water with, uh, with this uh, young woman, uh, my babysitter. And they'll never forget as they looked up and they saw the two of us, or actually her carrying me coming out of the water, and they saw me sitting up being carried up on her shoulders just laughing and enjoying the beach scene. And yet on her face was an expression of excruciating pain. And tears were just flowing down her cheeks. But she was being very silent and walking with great resolve toward the shore. And they didn't know what to make of it until as she came out of the water, the jellyfish began to drop off of her chest and her stomach And her thighs and her legs. And she walked toward my parents, handed me safely into their arms, and then she collapsed. Uh, Of course, there was medical help immediately and she was okay. But she sought to protect me. She gave herself, laid down her life for me. It was a sacrifice at great cost to her. It was an act of the will. And love is an act of the will. It's both an intention and an action. It's intentionally blessing others, even and especially when it costs us. Again, in John's words, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. To love like Jesus, that's what we're called to. But you don't like your neighbor, do you? Or maybe it's someone else in this church. You just don't like them. can't stand them, maybe. Your spouse is, is painfully critical. Your colleague is disrespectful and dismissive. What do, you, what, what do you typically do? How, how do you respond? What's your reaction? As we considered it several weeks ago, may, maybe you try to harm them. Might not be physically, but maybe you, you try to harm them socially, emotionally, professionally. And if you don't try to harm them, maybe you want them to be harmed. You just really hope something bad happens to them. Or maybe you're just plain indifferent. You could care less about them. The question is this. Do you settle for love's deceitful counterfeit? Do you settle for tolerance? Do you settle for tolerance? Tolerance is a high value promoted today. You know, a tolerant society... That's what we want, where everybody gets along and there's peace. I mean, come on. It may look good on the outside, but like bad fruit, it is rotten on the inside. I mean, tolerance is not a biblical value. Tolerance does not say, I love you. It says, yeah, I'll put up with you. I'll put up with you. The command is to love. The command is to love. Do not settle for the counterfeit. Please do not deceive yourselves by merely tolerating one another. John says, this is a dangerous place to be. He says it a couple of times in this passage, including verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. This is a dangerous place to be. John, again, A test of genuine faith. He wants us to examine our hearts. Is our faith faith real? Or do we just show up to church because we're supposed to? It's 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 being presumptuous with God. Is that what's really going on? Professing an empty faith. John pleads with us. To love like Jesus, to love like Jesus, that's what we're called to. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And here's where we get stuck, because we all know that loving one one another is not easy. I mean, it's not easy to love the people that you love sometimes, much less the people that you just don't like. I mean, when we're honest with ourselves and, and, and we look deep down, we know we just can't do it. The more difficult the situation, the more painful, the more hurtful the relationship that the other person is, that's when my inability to love is most exposed. Which is why we go to the foot of the cross again and again and again. It's why week after week from this pulpit we go to the cross because we need to hear it. It's why John takes us to the foot of the cross again and again. We can't do it on our own. In the words of another pastor, As we increasingly grasp the wonder of his wonderful, undeserved, gracious, sacrificial love for us, we are compelled to love one another. When we find it hard to love others, our great need is to return to the cross and be humbled again by that love so amazing, so divine, that demands my soul, my life, my all. Well, John was able to love. John was able to love because he was convinced of Jesus' love for him. In fact, some of you probably already know this, he identified himself, identifies himself in the gospel of John as the one Jesus loves. You see, as John's heart was transformed by love, he was enabled to love, to love with the love of Jesus. Uh, Brennan Manning says of the Apostle John uh, that if John were asked, What is your primary identity in life? What is is central to who you are? To what makes you up? That John would not reply, Well, I am a disciple. An apostle. I'm an evangelist. I I wrote the Gospel of John. First, second, third John. Capped it off with revelation. No, he wouldn't say that. He would simply say, I am the one Jesus loves. Sociologists have a theory called the looking glass self. The looking glass self. You become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. So, it could be a spouse, it could be a parent, it could be a friend, a colleague, a boss. But whoever that most important person is, what they think of you, that's what you become. That's how the theory goes. Who is most important in your life? Who do you listen to? I think, what if I I looked into the mirror, the looking glass? What if I looked into the mirror of God's word and saw what God sees? Saw that I too am the beloved of God. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's not that the Bible is primarily about me and you. It's primarily about God and and what he's done. God is love. And we love because he first loved us. You see, we are able to love when we are convinced of his love for us. Of Jesus' love for us. Because as our hearts are transformed by love we are enabled to love, to love one another through, with, in the love of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We look to you again. You, O God, who are love. We thank you for the supreme reality, the truth that God is love, and that you have expressed that to us most powerfully, beautifully, passionately. And the very thing that we're about to celebrate in a couple of weeks, laying down your life for us. And so we pray this morning, this day afresh, that, that you would convince our hearts more and more of your love for us. That as our hearts are transformed by your love, that you would enable us to love one another and to love you. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.